So hello everyone, welcome to another discussion-based podcast here from PodMedics. I'm with Dr. Ed Wallet. Hello. And we're going to discuss diuretic drugs today. All about diuretics. Indeed. So a slightly different format for the podcast. We're going to, we've got a mind map in front of us and we're going to navigate it and discuss things as we go along. Yep. So we're going to start, I believe, by having a look at some basic background that enables you to understand diuretics. Indeed. So first and foremost, what are diuretics? Well, diuretics are drugs that act on the kidney. They're the most common drug we prescribe that act on the kidney, and essentially they just increase the excretion of salt and water. There are lots of different types of diuretics, um, and different drugs have different actions and are used for a number of different indications. They're also some of the most commonly prescribed drugs in clinical practice, so it's a good thing to get used to what they do now. Certainly. So in this podcast we're going to discuss all of the major classes of diuretics that you'll become familiar with in clinical practice and we're going to highlight the individual drugs. We'll talk briefly about their pharmacology, some of the indications and the most common doses that you'll be using and any adverse effects you should be aware of. And we'll also be on the lookout for Stephen's erratic spelling mistakes. Oh, what have I done? No, it doesn't matter. Indications. (laughs) So briefly, let's go through some anatomy and physiology. So first, let's just do some gross anatomy. So Ed, why don't you talk us through this uh, next next picture? So this is a beautiful image from Gray's Anatomy. Um, Not much to say here, except that there are two kidneys. The right one sits slightly higher than the left on top of each kidney you have um, got an adrenal uh, gland um, enclosed within this structure, the suprarenal capsule, as is labelled here. Note also that you have got uh, one major structure uh, going into the kidney, i.e. the renal artery, that's providing uh, blood and nutrients, and you've got two structures coming out of each kidney. So you've got the renal vein, draining blood, and you've also got a ureter, which carries the urine down to the bladder. So this is a cross uh, section through a kidney in the coronal plane Um, and this is just, we're not going to go through this in any much detail, it's just to see that there is, um, the kidneys are basically the workhorse of the urinary system and the renal pelvis that comes out below that is just pipes and tubing really, so it's the kidney that does all of the work and if I just highlight a few things here to you, you can see the suprarenal gland or adrenal gland sat on top there and there's a grey capsule if you like around the outside of the kidney and that's the cortex and we'll see a bit more of that later when we go through nephrons and then there's the pyramidal system that goes into the papilla and that drains into the renal pelvis and uh, that's where urine is collected and then drains out through the ureter. Cool and this is the magic nephron this is the functional unit of the kidney you need to be aware of the basic Um, physiology that goes on here. We're not going to go into this in great detail, um, just about as much as you need to know to understand what the drugs do and where they act. So as Stephen already said, you've got your cortex and medulla, and notice that the span of the nephron goes through both of these structures. So some of the nephron lies in the cortex and some of it uh, lies in the medulla as well. 
So if we start on the far left, we've got a structure called the glomerulus. The glomerulus really is a ball of um, capillaries. You've got blood coming in through the afferent arteriole and you've got blood going out through the efferent venule. And basically what happens in the glomerulus is you get filtration going on. So you get pressure across there, which causes filtration of large amounts of uh, solute um, within the uh, solute and solvent within uh, the blood. Um, and then through the tubular system, you get selective reabsorption of various elements that are filtered at the glomerulus. And the major ones you need to know about are the proximal tubule and the distal tubule and then in between that you've got the structure called the loop of Henle which dives down into, into the uh, medulla and then finally after the distal tubule you've got the collecting ducts which eventually all form together to um, form pyramids which together form the uh, ureter or the beginning of the, the, the ureter at least. And just a quick aside, we've, we've called them proximal tubule and distal tubule, but some books you may see proximal convoluted tubule and distal convoluted tubule. They essentially mean the same thing, but proximal refers to its proximity to the glomerulus, um, so proximal is near to it and distal is far from it, and convoluted means that they are coiled up, um, but we've drawn them fairly straight here. So don't be um, scared by those terms, we'll just call them for ease proximal and distal tubules. Yeah. Okay, and Stephen, what goes oh, that's on? my turn. What goes on here? Well, in this one, we're just going to highlight some of the um, some of the ports uh, that I have on the epithelium that deal with sodium reabsorption and other electrolytes, just so that we can, when we take you through the diuretics, it's easier to understand. So on the left-hand side of the screen, you've got the meridus, and as uh, Ed said, you get ultrafiltration that um, produces a, a filtrate, and in the proximal tubule, most things are reabsorbed. Then it goes down into the loop of Henle. Uh, it has a descending limb and an ascending limb. The ascending limb has a portion that's very thin, and a portion that's very thick and on the thick portion you have this sodium potassium and chloride symporter that draws in those electrolytes and some diuretics inhibit that and can cause loss of salt and water we'll see that later there's also another symporter the sodium chloride symporter in the early distal tubule and there are another type of diuretics that inhibit that and the distal tubule then goes into the collecting system where lots of things go on here with um, antidiuretic hormone and aquaporins but we'll go through those later when we see some of the diuretics. Cool. So let's now talk about some specific uh, diuretic classes. I think what we're going to focus on are going to be the thiazides, loop diuretics, potassium sparing diuretics and then finally and very briefly the osmotic diuretics. Indeed. So let's go into the thiazides. So as we said before, we're going to split this into three. We're going to talk about the pharmacology, then we're going to talk about the uses and the most common doses, and then we're going to talk about some adverse effects you should be aware of. So let's go into pharmacology first. Okay, so once again, we see our schematic of the nephron, and what we've done um, is is shaded the area where 
um, the drug is acting. So with this class of drug, what we're getting is inhibition of sodium reabsorption at the early distal convoluted tubule. These drugs tend to act within one to two hours of oral administration and have a typical duration of action of between half a day and a day. If one were to place them on the spectrum of potency of diuretics, these would probably come in at the moderate sort of level. They would. So some examples of where we're going to be using thiazide or thiazide-like diuretics are in hypertension, and this may be a lone agent um, or in combination with other diuretics. So bendroflumethazide is a very common thiazide. It's used a lot in elderly, in primary care, at a dose of 2.5 milligrams for hypertension, and it's very effective. Thiazide-like diuretics include endapamide. The dosage is the same, so 2.5 milligrams. And it's thought that this causes less aggravation of the electrolytes and um, with diabetes. And um, thiazide should not be prescribed to people who are diabetic. Um, it can also be used for removal of salt and water, that is in moderate uh, or mild heart failure, but probably not severe. And again, benzofumethazide is the agent we would use at usually a dose of 2.5 milligrams, but it can go up to 5. But when you get above 2.5 milligrams, you get lots of adverse effects with um, electrolytes that we'll see later. Metolazone is another thiazide that is very powerful given at a dose of 5 milligrams and is used in hospital treatment um, in combination with a loop diuretic um, and it works even with renal failure and we use this in patients who are in heart failure um, or you know very resistant oedema but they can have a very profound diuresis so you need to monitor their fluid balance very closely. Cool. Um, for each of the classes of drugs, we're going to use this kind of table um, in order to talk about some of the important properties of the group of drugs. Um, if you look at the headings, we've got the um, important side effects, we've got important interactions and contraindications. Now, we're not going to go through every single one um, and the importance of it here, but we are probably going to focus on the most common things that on the ward and in, and in practice you will see and that you need to be aware of. For this group of drugs, I want to particularly say something about um, electrolyte aberration. Now, this is going to be a theme that's going to come back again and again and again. Because of the way that diuretics work, all of them have the capacity to disturb electrolyte balance. In the case of thiazides, what we get is hypokalemia because of uh, where it's having its effect. We also get a hypo natremia uh, as well and particularly we often see a hypercalcemia um, as well. Um, Stephen has already mentioned that thiazides are not the drugs of choice in diabetes and this is because they've been implemented in causing or worsening diabetic control and, and contributing to hyperglycemia. Indeed they can also cause hyperlipidemia which obviously as well is not good in the metabolic syndrome that often coexists with diabetes mm -hmm. um, and also we see an increase in urate levels in the blood uh, which also means uh, that this group of agents is largely contraindicated in those um, people who suffer from uh, gout. Um, it's also perhaps worth mentioning as often patients who are 
on thiazide may also have problems with their heart and may also be on digoxin. It may be just worth mentioning that the hypokalemia that may be present as a result of diuretic therapy can increase digoxin toxicity. So there's an important link there between those two medications. So let's move on. That's thiazides in a nutshell. Let's go on to loop diuretics. So loop diuretics are the most powerful of all of the diuretics and they're capable of causing around 15 to 20 percent of all the sodium in the filtrate um, being excreted. They act on the thick segment of the ascending loop of Henle and we've shaded the region there so they act on the sodium, potassium and chloride symporter um, to decrease the reabsorption of sodium thereby uh, it causing an increase in its excretion along with water as well. They also venodilate and reduce preload which is useful for some of the indications that we'll talk about in a moment and they act within an hour if given orally. You can also give these diuretics intravenously where they have a peak of 30 minutes or so and it lasts for around six hours and one of the uh, drug companies that markets this have named it Lasix because it lasts for six hours. Makes sense. Mm -hmm. So when do we use it? Well to be honest we use it a lot. Um, the most common situation that you'll see it used is in the treatment of mild to severe heart failure, um, particularly the symptoms of mild to severe heart failure. Um, it's very important to know that fruzamide does not prolong life expectancy in heart failure though, it just treats symptoms of edema. That may be peripheral edema or it may be pulmonary edema. Um, an alternative and a, or another type of loop diuretic that you'll see used a lot apart from furosemide is um, bumetanide, which is very, very potent. Um, and I think it's often useful, even at an undergraduate level, to actually learn some common dosage, doses of drugs, um, because as soon as you start working, you need to start using them. Um, obviously, saying that, there's a disclaimer in that we can't guarantee you that these are the right, exact right doses and you should always check them. But generally, um, in terms of bumetanide, it's thought that about one milligram of bumetanide is equivalent to about 40 um, of furosemide. Now, one of the situations in which you'll very commonly see furosemide used intravenously is in a patient presenting um, in pulmonary edema, secondary to severe left ventricular failure. Um, now, the reason that this works is really if we go back, and we'll go back actually quickly to this slide, is that not only do, does fruzamide cause a diuresis, so a net loss of fluid, which is a good thing if you have too much fluid on board and you have pulmonary edema, but it also causes venodilatation, which is very important because what happens is you get a reduction in preload. So in the case of left ventricular failure, your heart is having to pump less blood. So overall, there'd be less backflow and pressure into the pulmonary circuit. Um, a lot of people actually forget this secondary effect, but often you'll see that patients given fruzamide um, in the emergency room get better much more quickly than they, you'd expect them to simply from the diuretic effect. They get better before they started peeing, and that's simply because of this reduction in preload secondary to venodilatation. 
Finally, um, the uh, diuretics, loop diuretics such as furosemide can be used um, in the treatment of hypercalcemia. Um, however, this is slightly more specialised and you'll probably certainly see the, the first two examples used much, much more commonly. Indeed. So here again is our table of um, adverse effects and we've got contraindications. So renal failure and anuria is a relative contraindication. Um, if there is renal failure, you should use this with specialist advice. You will see it being used in those situations, but the risks and benefits will be carefully weighed. So it's a, it's a relative contraindication, but certainly if they do have renal failure, you shouldn't be giving them furosemide unless it's under the supervision of a specialist. Important side effects to note are electrolyte aberrations, and this may be um, taken advantage of when in the situation of hypercalcemia when we want to um, exploit one of these side effects but it also causes hypomagnesemia, uh, low potassium and also a low sodium. Um, it can also cause hyperuricemia and if given intravenously very quickly it can be ototoxic and uh, can potentiate the um, ototoxicity of other drugs such as gentamicin particularly in renal failure. So interactions is a reduced excretion of furosemide with lithium. That's important there. Um, we've already mentioned the aminoglycoside antibiotics such as gentamicin can cause ototoxicity and as well as that they can cause nephrotoxicity. They can also cause, um, the hypokalemia can cause an increase in uh, the risk of digoxin toxicity as well. Never a good thing. Never. Okay, so moving on now to the potassium sparing diuretics. There are two of these ones, um, spironolactone, which is probably the one that's used more, and amylaride as well, but we'll go through um, both. So starting with spironolactone, basically uh, spironolactone is an aldosterone antagonist. So it has its action at the aldosterone um, receptor in the um, in the proximal portion of the collecting duct. It's a fairly weak diuretic with only 2% of total sodium reabsorption occurring under aldosterone control, which that really explains because it's such a, a small amount that's under the control of this aldosterone, um, there's not much benefit to be gained from blocking it. But it also importantly potentiates thiazide and loop diuretics. So you do get a larger effect if these things are used together. In terms of its kinetics, it's a very well-absorbed uh, medication orally with a half-life um, of only around um, 10 minutes. So examples of where we might use spironolactone, um, it's used very commonly in the edema and ascites that's caused by liver cirrhosis. And this is at the higher dose of around 100 to 200 milligrams daily, but can be increased to up to 400 or so. Um, um, Low-dose spironolactone can be combined with furosemide in the treatment of heart failure. Now, Ed mentioned earlier that furosemide and thiazide diuretics uh, provide symptomatic relief from any oedema, whereas spironolactone has a prognostic benefit as well, according to one of the trials, the RAILS trial, and this is a low-dose 25 to 50 milligrams daily can also be uh, used in refractory hypertension and in primary hyperaldosteronism 
known as Conn syndrome, uh, can be used bef usually before surgery or if the patient is not fit for surgery, it can be used instead of surgery. Cool. And importantly, um, the uh, side effects, the most common side effect probably reported by patients on spironolactone is uh, gynecomastia, so that's enlargement of, of breast tissue. Um, the other important side effect to be aware of is hyperkalemia. Um, so spironolactone is one of those drugs that if you have a patient whose potassium comes back as high, you need to look at the drug chart and say, are they on spironolactone? Because that can certainly be a culprit. Um, obviously, in terms of um, interactions, there's going to be an increased risk of hyperkalemia if there are other agents as well that are known to cause hyperkalemia, such as ACE inhibitors, angiotensin receptor blockers, um, and non-steroidals. Absolutely. So let's go to the other potassium sparing diuretic that uh, is amelioride. So pharmacology of amelioride is slightly different to that of spironolactone. Um, it is a potassium sparing diuretic. It's very weak and is often given with a thiazide or a loop diuretic in combination. Um, and it is used to negate their potassium loss rather than any um, diuretic effect that it may add on top of those diuretics. And it acts on the late distal convoluted tubule and the collecting ducts um, and blocks the epithelial sodium channel. Um, we've not got it labelled here, but it, it, it does work on that action and it does have actions on uh, hydrogen ions as well. Gosh, when is it used? Um, well, Stephen's um, already mentioned it's often used to negate the hypokalemic effect of other um, diuretics and this has resulted in it being formulated into a medication called coamylofruse which is where you get amylaride and fruzamide and that comes in a variety of dosages but um, other examples where you may indeed see it be used are in hypertension congestive heart failure and indeed uh, just like with spironolactone it can sometimes be used in um, hepatic cirrhosis with ascites I love the um, trade name for um, Coamelia Fruz, Frumil. Sounds a bit like a, a bit like a yogurt, doesn't it? Frumil. Yeah. Yeah, it does. Tasty. Yum. So we'll go back to our table of adverse effects. And this is a really nice way of thinking about adverse effects, contraindications, important side effects and interactions. So we shouldn't be using um, amelioride in renal impairment. Um, important side effects are hyperkalemia, unsurprisingly gynecomastia again and increased risk of hyperkalemia with ACE inhibitors, ARBs and non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. So very similar to um, spironolactone in that sense. Yeah. Okay, so we're now on to our last group of diuretics. These are the osmotic diuretics. So how do these work? Osmotic diuretics, basically what they do is they cause an increase in plasma osmolarity because they are essentially large solutes. This leads to osmotic extraction of water from the brain directly. Importantly, however, they are filtered, the osmotic diuretic, but not reabsorbed by the kidney. So what you also get is a large amount of excretion of this water as well. So it has two effects, both on the brain and the kidney.
So this is kind of like what happens in um, diabetes mellitus when you start getting glucose that can't uh, that exceeds being spilled over into the um, the solute, the filtrate, but not able to be reabsorbed, and you get the polyuria and polydipsia associated with it. Yeah. So um, cerebral edema will be giving um, grams worth of the stuff, 50 to 200 over 24 hours. And let's go through the adverse effects when we shouldn't be using it. So uh, we shouldn't be using it in pulmonary edema or CCF. Why not? Well, because if you're giving the glucose load, you're also going to increase the osmolality, which will cause... Um, uh, an increase in viscosity and you'll cause water that goes in, into the tissue as well and it will impair left ventricular function so you shouldn't be giving it in those situations yeah I think that's it yeah I think so and side effects are a bit odd but probably relate to some sort of immunological reaction to the the large solute particles I would imagine um, some sort of um, sort of acute phase response which may include chills and, and fever So in this podcast, we've looked at diuretics. We've talked briefly about the kidneys and the functional unit of the kidney, the nephron. We've talked about each class of diuretic in turn, the thiazides, loop diuretics, potassium sparing, and osmotic. And we've discussed their pharmacology, uses, common dosages that you shouldn't quote us on, and any adverse effects. So thank you very much. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed this discussion-based podcast, and please do get back to us with any feedback. Yep. And also just a quick word, if you are a listener uh, on iTunes, a lot of people subscribe and listen to PubMedics on iTunes, and we really appreciate your um, reviews. It takes about two seconds. Just add a review and uh, we'd really appreciate it. Thank you very much. See you again soon. See you. Bye-bye.